Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. And I want to say welcome to people online. Uh, we see you. We know you're there. And uh, we're letting people drop off kids and get here. So we'll be starting the seminar shortly. So continue to talk amongst yourself. And we will see you shortly. Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet. My Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance by heavy stone. Messiah still and all alone. You're talking, just want to remind you, you can scan the code up here and uh, start joining the conversation on slido.com to ask questions. You can do that at home as well if you're joining us online. And uh, you can start sending your questions in now. That will help guide the discussion. And then on the third, at break of dawn, the son of heaven rose again. Oh, trampled death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ the King. Oh, praise the name of the Lord.
shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night, and I will rise among the saints. My Okay, I think that we have given enough time to everybody to drop off kids. We may have a few more people coming in because I know if I were dropping off my kids, I'd be showing up right about now. So uh, it's, it's really out of respect uh, for them. But I want to say welcome. I'd love to say welcome to any of our Spanish language speakers as well. Because our good friend Esteban, Esteban Tapia is going to do his best to translate some of the most complex theological uh, ideas um, that have ever been talked about. Right, Ron? Well, that's a little I mean, bit of an oversell. Oh, <laughs> uh... uh, well, <laughs> okay, fine, fine. So I will undersell it. This is going to, no, no. Um, no, this is going to be a great time. In fact, I love I love this topic, and and I this it just feels like we're we're beginning to to enter into the Easter season already. I mean, because as we you know as as pastors when we're planning, we're always kind of thinking about the next big thing coming, and uh, we're kind of always thinking about Easter, right? Because every Sunday we celebrate Easter a little bit. You know, do you understand I me? Mean, every Sunday, in a sense, is a resurrection Sunday. And we're talking about the cross today, what happens on the cross, um, but it is so tied in to, uh, to the resurrection. And so this is, we're going to get into some theology today. We hope to push you a bit, to make you think, to use some of those brain muscles that uh, you either haven't used in a while or, um, you know, maybe even things you, you haven't thought about ever. That would be, that would be fun. Um, and, uh, and so that's coming up in a bit. Oh, you have a question already, Joey? I think that atonement isn't a theory, though. Atonement isn't a theory. No, in fact, there are theories of atonement. That's a great... Okay, so Jody asked, for those at home who can't hear her, um, she just said, atonement is not a theory. It has been done, is what she says. Ryan? The question is, what has been done? And that, that's why there are different theories of atonement. And so that's why we have a seminar. So some would say there, some would, some <laughs> okay, would use, the, uh, use the term motif uh, instead of theory, which may be a little bit more accurate, but we could debate that after or we, during. You know, that's the, that's the kind of level of debate we're going to get into is even the title of the event. <laughs> Yes. So this is good. This yes. is good. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but can yeah. I just tell you about a few things coming Why up? Why is everybody leaving? <laughs> I know. Um, let me tell you about a few things coming up. Um, you are. You made it to the third Wednesday 
uh, of the month. And so that's why we're gathering in this format. And uh, that's every month we're trying to give you something that you can chew on, some, some topic that can uh, be beneficial. Next month, this time, in fact, the exact same day of next month, um, will be our Bible in our hands seminar. Okay, we're actually going to have a live hands-on exhibit in this room, and the seminar is going to be in the worship center. And so we'd love to have you come out for that. Throughout that week, uh, there's going to be an opportunity for you to, to visit the seminar and to, to spend time with some ancient Bible leaves that is going to be super interesting. So I'd love to invite you back to that. Uh, the first Wednesday of March, it's March 2nd, and that we're also going to be in the worship center. We're going to be gathering with uh, all the youth in the church as well. So junior high, high school, um, all ages are going to gather to worship the Lord. And actually, our theme for that is entering the season of, of Easter. So it is a preparation service, um, entering into what has some, some have called it a, the Lent season. And so we're, that's the beginning of Lent on that day. And so we're going to, we're going to kind of have a little pre-Easter service on that Wednesday night. And so I hope you'll come out for that. All right. Well, Ryan, how are you doing? I'm good. You ready for this? I am. Okay. Yeah, so let's dive in. this is also a, a part of our podcast. And so right. I, I want to say welcome to all the podcast listeners out there um, because uh, the Vitology podcast, um, that's a, sort of a fun word that is a, a Latin word meaning um, vita, life. And the study of ology, so um, the study of life, and this is something that uh, Ryan and I get to do most weeks, and we're kind of get to do this here for you today. Yeah. And, uh, and so this is a little of that setup. Um, I'm kind of going to be doing most of the asking of questions. I'll be fielding yours through the app as well, um, and, uh, and or you know, Jody, if you just want to raise your hand, you can do that as well. If you're um, in the house, if you're you can in do the that. house, yeah, yep. at home, you can put your hand down now. Ryan, I think we need to pray yeah. to begin this. Let's do that. Would you, Can I pray? Would you lead us? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Lord, we come before you and are really grateful for the chance to live on this side of the cross, God. where we get to look back at your finished work on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that tonight would be more than just an intellectual exercise, but that we would really enter in um, to this story of redemption that climaxes with you dying on our behalf in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. And so God, not that our head would be filled with knowledge, that's not our goal tonight, but that our heart would be more filled with, with love, both for you and for others. And that you might shock us once again, this beautiful mystery of you coming to our rescue, dying in our place, forgiving our sins, and welcoming us home. So, Lord, we're thankful for that, and we lift this time up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 How wonderful. Um, so uh, if you've been joining us on Sunday mornings, you know that we are teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And my hope is that you've been challenged and that you've been encouraged and that you've noticed it's been pretty thick, the theme of the cross over these first few weeks. Let me just give you a few um, 
sort of anchor points as to why we decided to do this seminar. In verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul wrote, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those being saved, it is the power of God. So the cross is the, the saving work of God on display, his power displayed towards us who in our natural sinful state are perishing without it. So we said that the cross is the way that God saves. Second, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And he's directing, he's, he's tying together the preaching of the cross with belief that leads to salvation. So in one of the messages we said um, that or pointed out that uh, the week of Jesus's crucifixion is one 1,716th of his life, um, which is 0.06% roughly of the time that Jesus walked this earth, 33 years. And yet it's roughly, that last week of Jesus's life is roughly a third of the gospel accounts. A third of the material we have about the life of Christ is about that last week. And if you read through the gospel of Mark, it's as though Mark just zooms through the first 33.8 years of Jesus's life and then comes to a screeching halt at the beginning of chapter nine as he spends almost eight chapters unpacking what happens in this last week of Jesus's life. And it was simply a way for us to locate ourselves within the story that the scriptures are telling specifically through the gospels to say this, the cross, is a huge deal to the authors of the scriptures, to God, and to the early church. I would argue that there's no more single, no single event in the course of history that's more important, no event that's more written about, no, no event that's more debated. Um, theologian, early 20th century theologian, Alexander McLaren wrote, the cross is the center of the world's history. The incarnation, incarnation of Christ and crucifixion of our Lord are the pivot round which all events of the ages revolve. So this is the central event in the course of history. And, and a lot of theologians will sort of combine the cross and resurrection into a singular idea. But the cross and resurrection are the central events for followers of Jesus. And I would argue for anyone who's ever lived. And the question is why? And Paul hit on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he said that for those who are perishing, the cross is foolishness. But for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the Apostle Paul would say, the reason the cross is so important is because it saves us from the doom that our sin creates, which is the, the punishment of sin, which is death. And we'll get into that later on in a few moments. So back to um, Jody's question. And, and rather than um, talking about the word theories, let's talk about the word atonement. Uh, anybody know what that word means? Paid for, covering, quite literally it means covering. And the idea comes in the scriptures from what's called the day of atonement. And um, you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16. The day of atonement uh, was the day that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, 
where he would make sacrifice for the sin of the people. Really, there were two goats that were involved on the Day of Atonement. One was called the sin offering. The sin offering, the goat would be killed. His blood would be splattered on the mercy seat or the hilasterion, if you want to call it in Greek, and then sort of on top of it and in front of it. And it was to create clean space for the nation of Israel to interact between with, with a holy God in the midst of being a sinful people. It was a way of sort of clearing the house so that they could meet with God in a personal way. The second goat was called the Azazel. Will you say that with me? Azazel. And it means the scapegoat or the goat that carried away the sins of the people. And oftentimes they would take the scapegoat up to the side of the cliff and sometimes they would Give him a little nudge off the cliff because you didn't want the scapegoat to end up in your front yard the next day carrying the sin of the people of Israel, right? You wanted that goat to be long gone. And so sometimes they took extra measures to make sure that happened. But that was called the Day of Atonement. It was the day where um, the nation of Israel, their sins were covered and they were once again able to interact with and meet with God. And so when people started to talk about what happened on the cross, they used this same word, atonement. That God made covering for sin, that he forgave sin. Or if we want to use the words of uh, John in John chapter 1, verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who, what? Takes away the sin of the world. This is, that, that language is Azazel language, right? He's carrying away the sin of the world. And so when we talk about theories of atonement, we're talking about different ways throughout history that people have viewed what happened on the cross, what took place on the cross, and they've tried to unpack that and explain that. And here's what I want to say at the onset. Uh, My goal tonight is to not give you one theory of atonement that is the correct theory of atonement, okay? So if if you were coming in order to hear that, That's not what I'm going to give you. My goal is to give you an overview of church history and church thought and church theology when it comes to the, what happened on the cross, what, what, when it comes to the theology of atonement. And my hope is that you walk out of here and you see there, you have a sheet, I hope, that has five different views of atonement that we're going to walk through in just a few moments. And my hope is that you walk out of here going, there's truth in each one of these, and they, they were on to something when this theory of atonement rose to prominence in the church. And there will probably be, and I won't seed which one it should be, there will probably be a theory that you say, I think this theory best captures in a holistic manner what happened on the cross. But my hope is that you don't walk out of here saying, yeah, but this theory has no validity and that theory doesn't, doesn't matter. And I, I think, you know, the rabbis used to talk about turning the gem of scripture, right? And you look at it from different angles and you see things a little bit differently. My hope is that each of these theories of atonement will help you sort of turn that gem and see what happened on the cross a little bit differently with a little bit more depth and a little bit more nuance And my hope is a little bit more beauty. So that's my, that's the intro. I love it. Anything I love it. Well, I'm monitoring questions questions. here. And uh, so far it one, there's one, it says, hi. Um, Not a question. That's not a question. That's not just to be clear. um, I'm, I'm just going to sit here then. 
and listen. Okay. Because let's, let's dive in because um, there's more than five, right? The, yeah, there, there are a number of different theories of atonement. Um, and we just tried to highlight the five that are most popular um, or at least most popularized right now. And yeah. um, there's a number of others that we could have included. We could have included a governmental theory of atonement. We could have included the recapitulation theory of atonement. There's a number of others yeah. that we didn't include that we could have. Yeah, but these have been historic. Correct. Right? So they, they've, they've influenced uh, theology in very important ways. And so, Correct. So let's, let's dive in. I know there's a lot to cover. And I'm waiting for your questions and watching for them. Slido.com 332233 is the code. Okay. So my goal is to go in, um, in as close to chronological order as I can. But please hear me on this. All of these theories were present in the early church in some form. So when I say chronology, I'm not talking about when the theory was developed. I'm talking more about when it came to prominence or popularity in the general church culture, okay? And so I, I would suggest that the first theory that sort of rose up as a prominent theory within the church is called the moral influence theory. There's some very popular early uh, church fathers and theologians, oh, thank you, mm-hmm. that um, that really talked about this theory as being the prominent lens through which uh, the cross was viewed. Uh, St. Augustine was one of those who would have said the moral influence theory was a great way of looking at what happened on the cross. Now, how would I summarize the moral influence theory? It's that Jesus came and died in order to give us a model of the way that we should live. And so... If you hear that and you go, that lacks a little bit of teeth, if you will, (laughs) Um, I'll I'll, I'll let you know in just a few moments. I I tend to agree with you, but let's just step back for a moment and go, okay, what they see, what we see Jesus doing on the cross is the very thing that he is going to call us to do as followers of Jesus. So they're arguing, the people that would argue for the moral influence theory, that Jesus is giving us a picture of what it looks like to live in his way with his heart. Now, let me ask you, and, and let me get at what you mean. I, let me see if this helps get at what you mean by uh, lacking teeth. If people said that this was all Jesus was doing, was giving us an example, that would definitely lack teeth, right? Correct. Because I don't, like all of us would say at some level that, that Jesus' death on the cross um, is an example to us. I mean, the Bible says that, right? Yes. Um, so w- when you say that this is an atonement theory, Explain what, what you mean by, by um, how moral influence can be a theory of what... Were they saying that's really most of what happened on the cross? Yeah, what they're saying, the, the people that would have ascribed to this theory or even helped develop it, is that the main thing that we see on the cross is an example that we are called to follow. Now, certainly, if you've read Augustine, you know that he, he said far more than that about what took place on the cross. So there was nuance there and there was depth there. But the theory focuses not just on what Jesus did on the cross, but what Jesus did throughout his life. So they wanted to say, listen, this was that Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He lived a cruciform life. Mm. This is the way that he lived throughout self-giving love for the sake of others. So that, that's the first theory. And let me just give you a few scriptures that, would back this theory up. Um, number one, 
Ah, John chapter three, verse 15. For I have given you a what? An example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now, Jesus has just gotten down and he's washed the feet of his disciples, right? And he says, I'm giving you an example. And he goes, goes to the cross and he gives them yet another example of the way that they are called to live in light of what he's done. A famous passage of scripture, my guess is some of you may even have it memorized. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So there's this implicit call within being a disciple that we are called to come and follow and come and die. This is the moral influence theory, I think, captured best in one passage of scripture. Now, what does the moral theory, moral influence theory get right? We're definitely called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. There is no debate about that. Living in his way with his heart is the essence of discipleship. We are called to live a cruciform life. Um, when I say this theory, in my opinion, lacks teeth, I don't know that as a, a, holistically as a theory, it deals with the problem of sin well enough for us to say, this is the lens through which we should view the cross. Does that make sense? That, that if Jesus saves us from, from sin, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, in my opinion, the moral influence theory doesn't come at that hard enough to be the overarching umbrella through which we view the cross. Yes, and that, that gets at um, why there's some debate on this whole um, this whole thing, right? This and, and why this is talked about among the, theologians is actually because people tend to be looking for like a unifying theory, in a sense, or one sure. theory that is dominant above all the others. And so you could see how I think Augustine would be a good example. This may have been at, at least parts of his life the main theory for him, right. and then he saw others as being applicable, also, as you'll see. Um, but what you're getting at is that this is probably not the best candidate for the main one. Now, would you say that means that this is a wrong theory? No, of, no way. Uh, tell me. Okay. No, not at all. I, just to be clear, I think all of the theories um, e either elevate or diminish certain aspects of what happened on the cross. So I, I think they all have both their good points, and I think they all have some potential shortcomings. Okay, so um, a question's already come in directly related to this. This is how it's working, people. Way to go. Uh, is, moral, is the moral influence theory the same as being a disciple of Jesus? Um, not necessarily. Not necessarily. I think being a disciple of Jesus necessarily demands that we take up our cross and follow after him, but it being a disciple does not demand that what we see happening on the cross is solely a call to live uh, in, in his way with his heart or to live, to take that as our example of the way to live. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. You'd probably so we wouldn't it. want to limit it to yeah, that. Good. We wouldn't want to limit it good. to that. They asked that question because my picture had a cross on it. Ah, Someone carrying yeah, right a on, cross. Right on. Good job, everybody. You saw that. We're together on that. Okay. We just have a, a raised hand in the background. And I'll try to repeat for the online crowd. Hey. Ah. Yeah. So the question is, 
Yeah, how, how if, uh, if, if atonement is the operative phrase here and atonement is covering, um, it doesn't seem like this theory covers much of anything, right? So how is this even a, a theory of the atonement? That's a great question, Ryan. Yeah, that, that is a great question. I don't know exactly how I would answer that, um, except to say that we are being led out of the bondage of uh, of sin, which some would describe as a complete obsession and focus on self, and out of that into a life of self, self-sacrificial love that's modeled best through Jesus's work on the cross. It doesn't do anything to deal with a judicial problem. It doesn't do anything to deal with the holiness of God. It, so none of that except to give us an example of a way to live uh, freed from the bondage of sin. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, I, it does. On that point, I guess this could be dangerous in that if, if you thought that the only way to be covered um, by the cross is to actually you know, do the same thing. Correct. Like, you know, so, so maybe that, that's where some of the excesses of um, that kind of thinking has taken place in the church universal um, there has been times when, um, in particular, the, the Roman Catholic Church for a time was very focused on work salvation. Um, and that may be yeah. for that reason that they thought that that's how you get you cover your sin. So it could be a danger of that. Yeah, if we sort of have a, a threefold view of Jesus, that Jesus is rabbi, that Jesus is savior, that Jesus is Lord, I would argue that this elevates Jesus as rabbi um, far above any of those other descriptions of Jesus and, and maybe even edges those out to the periphery to where you can't even really see him. Okay, well, let's move on because I think this, these next ones start getting more into the atonement idea. All right, so this is another very early uh, theory within uh, the history of the church, and it is the ransom theory of atonement. Now, sometimes this theory was held right alongside of the moral influence theory for reasons that we've identified. Um, so this theory suggests that Jesus died as our ransom, meaning that we were held captive and that Jesus paid off Satan in this case in order to free us from the captivity that we were held under. So you, you have to sort of view this as a cosmic drama where humanity is being held captive uh, by the prince and ruler of the air, according to the scriptures, and that Jesus has to do a work in order to free us from that captivity. He does that work through the cross, and we are then freed to be victorious with him. Now, this view, this, this, there's sort of, it's interesting what happened throughout the course of church history with this view, because it rose to prominence, and then as theologians started to debate it, it faded from prominence because theologians couldn't decide who was getting paid off. And so there was this huge debate within the church. Is it Jesus? Who, is it God the Father who's getting paid off? Is it the devil who's getting paid off? And so eventually, and this is my caricature of it, they just decided we're not going to highlight this view as much anymore because yeah. we can't decide who's getting paid off. And um, you'll see this start to come about in some of the other theories of atonement where they start to nuance this a little bit more. But listen to what one uh, scholar theologian, Robin Collins, 
Brody said, essentially this theory claimed that Adam and Eve sold humanity over to the devil at the time of the fall. Hence, justice required that God pay the devil a ransom for the devil did not realize that Christ could not be held in the bonds of death. Once the devil accepted Christ's death as a ransom, this theory concluded justice was satisfied and God was able to free us from Satan's grip. So that clears so, it all up. There you go. I know. Now, um, but th this is a, there's popular versions of this, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, this is basically the line, the witch in the wardrobe, <laughs> right? I mean, to some extent, yeah. right? There's a, uh, there's a debt to be paid by the white, the evil witch, or anyway, the, the evil witch of the North, or, oh my goodness, I'm mixing up all the stories. All the witches, one of the witches is... Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a witch. Yes, there's a witch involved. And she um, needs a ransom paid. Right, and she needs a ransom paid, and Aslan pays the price that is owed because of, what's his name, sin. Of all the characters I've forgotten... <laughs> Edmund? All right. Yes. Which one is it? Edmund? Edmund. Edmund yeah. Sin. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Um, right. Okay, so what are passages of scripture that uh, that would back this idea, this theory motif up? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? Oh. Ransom right there. for many. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. You'll see this verse again when we talk about the next theory. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And so you have this idea of this cosmic battle that's going on, the devil has humanity held captive, and that Jesus comes and pays the ransom in order to free us. Now, what does this theory get right? Uh, there's certainly an aspect of the fall that makes the devil the prince and power of the air um, and gives him serious power in the world at large. We're captive to the fear of death, and without the work of Jesus, we are left in bondage to sin. But I would argue one of the challenging points of this view is that it seems as though the devil is paid off rather than being defeated. Mm. And... Um, I think that's troubling, especially in light of some of the passages that we'll look at in just a moment when we talk about the Croesus Victor model of atonement. Yeah, there's a great question here that says, uh, it, it sounds like Satan is really powerful in ransom theory. If he needs paying off, it sounds like God is being blackmailed. That's, that's, that's a problem. That's a problem, right? That is a problem. And I would say that... Um, Satan is not, here's a double negative for you, is not an inconsequential character when it comes to atonement. Meaning that, that he is important. So he's important. So he and, is consequential. Um, I would say that some views elevate uh, his power and some views he's not present at all. Huh. And so I just wonder if there's maybe um, a, a middle ground that we could come to, or maybe we need multiple theories in order to see fully what's going on mm. because some don't address uh, the, this passage at all. Yeah. So any other questions about ransom theory? And if you're wondering, is this a movie that Mel Gibson starred in? It is. Definitely. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Seems like it should be right. Yeah. There's some, 
there are some related questions coming in that we may get to. I wasn't even thinking of the Passion of the Christ. I was thinking of you were uh, thinking of the movie. The, <laughs> there's a movie where he ransoms. there's a ransom. Which one is that? It might be called Ransom for all. Was it? I all right. Know. Yeah. I don't know that we should recommend it. No, we don't. We don't. We're not sponsored by that. <laughs> um, okay, this is a related question because um, you know talking about who has the power here <laughs> um, because it. That question of ransom, um, is, it, <clears throat> is it paying off God oh man, or paying off the devil? Um, so someone asked, does God have the power of death after the cross? Yeah, um, let me point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I, I think it's verse 25. I, I would say yes, ultimately yes, and you decide about what that, this looks like today, okay? Um, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This goes on to say then, where, O oh, death, is yeah. your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? That the cross ultimately has rendered Death with a capital D, meaning like death as a character in this divine drama that God is telling, has rendered him powerless, and yet he still has power today. How many of you have been to a funeral lately? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, because it does, because, oh, death wears your victory. Right before that, it says, then shall come to Correct. pass the saying that is written, as if to say, uh, death still has some victory now. Yeah, a perceived victory, right? A temporal victory. Temporal victory, okay. That, um, that I, 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 would, I, would, I would just say that death is a reality, but it's not a finality. That, that a preach or something? No, I'm just kidding. That's good. What? But death, yeah, you know, oh, death, where's your sting? That's one of those things, um, anyone who's lost somebody, you know, it still stings. There's still yeah. much, of, I mean, a lot of a sting, but that sting is a, not a finality. I like that. That's really good. That's a good answer. All right, next, Siri? Let's, let's keep going. Do, do we have other questions on that one? There's some that we'll get to in a bit. Okay. Guess. Oh, yes. fun. All right, good. Good, good. Okay, next theory. Uh, the next theory is Croesus Victor theory of atonement. And the Croesus Victor theory of atonement, um, some would argue, is one of the uh, most widely dominant theories of atonement within the historic Christian church, meaning it transcends... Um, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, that there are versions of this in each of those streams. Um, and this theory essentially states that Christ died in order to defeat the cosmic enemies of sin, death, and evil. That Christ's death on the cross wins the victory over the very things that are waging war against humanity's soul. So, um, you have very ancient, um, like sort of early church fathers writing about this idea, just like you did the other ones. Um, and then you have um, a, uh, a guy named, uh, is it Gustav Elun, who wrote um, uh, Crucis Victor. I think it was in 1931, and it started to get a little bit more prominent um, in that time period as well. So, Jesus gets a victory. Unlike, um, unlike ransom theory, where Satan gets paid off, Croesus' victor suggests that Satan gets destroyed. 
and defeated. And here's some passages of scripture that would back this up. Um, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. So John says, why did Jesus come? In order to destroy the work of the devil. That's why he came. Um, Second, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And here's the Christus Victor portion. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Uh, Finally, I would add in John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This is Jesus as he's uh, going towards the cross in the gospel of John. He talks about verses 31 through 33, essentially. So what does this theory get right? Um, I think this theory does a great job in honoring the storyline of the scriptures that starts in Genesis chapter 1 and ends in Revelation chapter 22. I, th- I think it honors the, the meta-narrative and the story arc. We see that Jesus, the victor over sin, Satan, death, and evil. Um, but I would say that the weakness of the Croesus victor model is that it does not take into account, at least in my um, reading of it, study of it, uh, in a strong enough sense, the personal debt that we incur because of sin. Hmm. And um, so while, while Satan is defeated and evil is defeated and death is defeated, ultimately, we don't, and with increases victor, we don't see the personal aspect of our sin and offense against the holy God really truly being dealt with. And so I think that that is, um, in my opinion, the weakness of that model. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it seems to be a bit more cosmic Correct. in nature, right? This is, and, and this is, those passages are, uh, are very cosmic in scope that, that, that he's defeated the powers, right? Um, which to that we say, yes, yes, he has. Um, and yet taking that to, to get to me, what does that mean for me now? How, does, how do I right. apply that? That's a good point. Right. And, so, and just so we're clear, the cross is a cosmic event. Yes. Like, let's not lose sight of this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 says, And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross, that the cross reconciles things in earth and heaven. Mm-hmm. This is truly a cosmic and eternal event. No doubt. No doubt. Any okay. questions? So yes, there are. Now, and, and a lot of these, they're starting to get at what the powers are, right? Okay. Um, so, um, so now, and, and so let me go back to your, uh, that, was, that was pretty close. The Christus Victor book is uh, Gustav Alon, Alen, Aulen, some way. <laughs> he's you say Swedish. with an accent and he's Swedish. Seriously? Yeah, exactly. Um, then it sounds um, like you know what you're talking about. He does talk about three main ideas. Mm-hmm. Now, did you, someone asked what those are um, or what the, uh, not the three main ideas, but here's the question. Let me just read it. Um, 
what are the three cosmic forces according to Christus Victor? Yeah, um, my understanding, and if you want to dive into the book, let me know what your understanding is. Um, sin, death, and evil. Sin, death, and evil. That those are, those are the three cosmic enemies that Jesus defeats on the cross. Okay. And so we, you know, Chris's victor would suggest that these are um, more than like, like think of them all in uppercase. Where, oh, death is your victory, yeah. right? Like almost personified, right? That, um, that sin in uh, not just the lowercase s sin, but sin as a force and sin as um, a cosmic offense to a holy mm. God, mm. right? That, that would separate us from him. Yeah. So, okay, stick on that for just a minute because someone does ask, um, who is death? <laughs> um, where does death come from? We know he's got a sting. He, we definitely <laughs> know that, right? Now, you use the, the phrase uh, personified, right? Now, um, is that an example, do you think, of, of, uh, of an idea that is made personal in our scripture to kind of give it more meaning? Yeah, but it, not in the sense that it becomes like um, some sort of, you know, anthropomorphism. It's not, it's not that way necessarily, but it is bigger than just an event, right, that mm -hmm. happens. It is, uh, it is a, a power that we're under, right? Um, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Let's go back there and just look at this really quick. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So there's this idea that death is being defeated. Okay. So, but once again, though, does that mean that there is... A being called death? No, but there is a being who loves death. Ah, there we go. Right, so, right, uh, Satan, sin, death, evil, right? Satan loves death. He, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Uh -huh. He loves that we are, apart from Christ, under the bondage of death, okay. sin, and evil. Okay. So, okay, this is related because actually... So multiple people asked, who is death, right? But, but here's the question is, where did death start and where does death come from was kind of uh, the idea, right? Yeah, I and mean, let, we can go back to, let's go back book. to the very beginning of the story. Back. So if you go turn over to Genesis chapter three, um, we know that God did not design humanity to experience death. He designed humanity to live eternally through relationship with him. And so it was only through sin that uh, death entered into the world. Uh, verse 17, uh, we'll start in verse 16. The Lord commanded them saying, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. <laughs> and the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall die. Right? So this is where death is introduced into the story, into the narrative. It is in the very beginning, but death is a result of being separated from the author of life. So not able to partake anymore from the tree of life, 
connection to the divine, connection to God, and then we begin to die because we're disconnected from the author of life. This is like in um, Acts chapter 3, verse 15, when Peter's preaching and he looks at the people and he goes, you killed the author of life, right? Like this ironic twist. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I love it. So that's where death is introduced. That's where it's introduced. So, okay, so now someone asked, did did Adam and Eve, um, did their sin start the cosmic forces against God or did they exist beforehand? Now this... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, I, I would say that the potential for death existed beforehand. Yes. Now, but death itself is introduced with sin. Just so we're clear, that Romans chapter five, that through, uh, through yeah. sin, we encounter death. So Romans chapter five is a great passage of scripture, an important text that really helps us enter into this Adam and Eve story in a new way mm-hmm. and to see Christ in this as well. Okay. Because that, well, that concept of, of death, it enters in the beginning and it's there at the end. So a number of people have asked about the question about uh, Romans 20, verse 13. And let me read that. To Romans you. 20? Sorry, Revelation. Oh, it started with an R. I'm like, Excuse man, me. Paul got after it. These are Gnostic, <laughs> yes. these are Gnostic no, epistles. No, no, no. no? Okay. Excuse me. Revelation 20, verse 13 says, uh, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And then, um, at least in the ESV, it's capitalized here, death and Hades yeah. gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to to what they had done. Yep. Yeah. Um, so at both times in Revelation where it talks about the lake of fire, it talks about it being the second death. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's the death that Jesus claims to hold the keys over, right? In Revelation chapter 1, verses 17. Uh, or, yeah, 117. So, um, yeah, so, so still asked, but who is it? <laughs> um, because they, they're, they're capitalized there, because we also, I, I don't think we'd say that Hades is a, is a person. No. No, it's, it's, it's death as, um, as a holistic entity. As right? power. As a power. Absolutely, yeah. So. Yeah, so I think that's, I mean, part of this, we're, we're dealing with some highly um, stylized language here, and um, these revelation in particular um, is dealing with conceptual ideas, and it's very. This is why it's very difficult to take uh, to take revelation um, literally. In fact, sometimes people take some things very literally and some things very not literally, all in the same passage, and that's kind of part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, um, like death gave up its dead. Yes, yes, because we got dead using. So both there's, there's, a, there's a the dance same. going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Steve. Uh, perhaps uh, in, in kind of drawing a number of questions, what would you think the church talking about death? Sometimes they're referring to a physical death. Sometimes it's a physical death, the question, just repeating. Sometimes physical death, sometimes spiritual death. Yep. And so there's a question there. When Adam and Eve on that day when they were supposed to have died, they, they didn't physically die. Correct. The died. Yes. However, we would 
now separated from God. And that would then sum up the Hades yep. and the death being a spiritual death. Yeah. That only Jesus has the victory and the keys over it. And I'm just kind of asking that. Yeah. Yeah. I would say um, if, we, if we took that idea to the nth degree, we would, we would have to say something to the effect of that sin isn't the reason that we die physically. So I think there are some issues there theologically because I would say that the reason we die physically is ultimately because of sin in the world, that if sin weren't present in our world, in our lives, we wouldn't die physically. So I'm not content personally to say that it's only a spiritual death, but that it's certainly there are aspects of a spiritual death that exist when we cut ourselves off from the author of life. Right. It's, it's both and. It's both and. Yeah. So, and, and, and for those at home, um, he's pointing out that there's, there is spiritual death and physical death. And, and sometimes, I, sometimes our authors might be thinking one and we're thinking the other. And so we have to be careful there to make too many conclusions based on one or the other. When uh, something like this, when death is capitalized, maybe that's a little bit more of the spiritual death idea. And yet, it's the power, in a sense, that controls the physical death, I'd say, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because when, when that death, and this is the, the great news, the exciting part of it, when that death is thrown into the lake of fire, that means no more death for us, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the amazing part, right? No more death for humans, right? Satisfaction? Let's, uh, yeah, let's go to satisfaction. We could stay here for a while, but we can come back to it. We'll come back. All right. So um, in roughly the 12th century, Anselm of Canterbury proposed the satisfaction theory of atonement. Remember, all of these are present in uh, an incipient form in the early church. None of these are brand new when they come onto the scene. Um, oh, there you go. And, uh, but he popularized it. And uh, the essence of the satisfaction theory was that God's justice must be satisfied in order for sinners like you and me to be free. And so the big idea is that God is just and his justice must be satisfied. The theory was developed in at least in a bit of a dance and reaction to the dominance of the ransom theory that was taking place at the time that the devil had, that God had to pay off the devil in order to win humanity back. And so Anselm and others like him went, no, 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 this is not about rescuing humanity from the devil. This is about making us right with a holy God and God in his justice must punish sin. And, um, and so this is the first theory of atonement to bring up the notion that, um, that we've talked about at least, that God is acted upon by what happens on the cross. Does that make sense? So, so the other ones are God acting. This one is God both as the object and the subject, if you will. And there is good scriptural foundation for this. We do know uh, very clearly that the wages of sin is death. And right? by the way, I'm sorry to our Spanish speakers. I, I didn't fix that. <laughs> Copy and pasted the wrong, the wrong Spanish there. So, ah, okay, there you go. Your Spanish is still <laughs> my in Spanish process. is bad. Yeah. Um, so the wages of sin is death, 
Um, that, that, by the way, that's the storyline from the beginning. The wages of sin is death. The punishment for sin is death. The punishment for sin isn't punishment. It's specific. It's death. And it has been from the very beginning of the storyline. Um, this passage in Romans chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. But if, our, if in our, sorry, I'm going to read off this. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, he says. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? And so Paul's clearly saying that God is the judge of the world. He will judge the world, that sin is wrong and it demands his wrath and um, rightfully so. And so um, God is judge. Here we see it even more clearly in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. So this is the object and the subject in a sense. The one of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then finally, one of my favorite passages of scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The reformers would call this the great exchange for he, Jesus, uh, for, uh, sorry, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful truth. Um, what does this theory get right? It directly addresses God's justice and the debt that our sin incurred, that God would not be just if he did not act against sin. Um, God is the just and the justifier, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 26. And... Um, what maybe is left undone or unsaid within the satisfaction theory is the fact that the devil is a key player in the cosmic battle, right? So there's no, um, like Croesus Victor addressed the devil's part. Um, this theory does not explicitly, explicitly. Yeah, but this theory tends to start to get at the, what you were getting at of the problem of the Christus Victor theory is the personal nature of it, Correct. right? Because um, this, is, this is attempting to say that your sin has caused a problem and God needs to be satisfied because of that. Correct. Right? Yeah, his justice, not, and, and maybe not even, I mean, yes, God has to be satisfied, but specifically that's, that's, that's... for God to be a just God, he can't wink at sin, right? And we wouldn't want him to, just so we're clear. Like we would, not want, we would not want a God that goes, yeah, no big deal. Genocide, yeah, no big deal, right? No. Yeah. Like abuse, no big deal. Like the fact that God is actively against sin and is a just God is really, really good news. And I would suggest to you, you would not want a God otherwise. Okay, so now let me, um, someone here is, is pushing back a little bit on that. Because I think the assumption in this question is that it makes God look like the bad guy. So the question really is, is, is God the bad guy in satisfaction theory? No. Um, we're the bad guy. Right? So God is just. And like I said, if, if God um, loosens up on his justice, it does not make him better. It doesn't make him good. Um, in fact, 
that's not the kind of world that eternally we would want to live in, mm -hmm. right? And so, no, in this theory, I, I would suggest that it's humanity that incurs the debt of sin, uh, which is death. The wages of sin is death. And that God, in his justice, um, executes uh, the punishment for sin, okay? So, but I think what this person, I'm guessing, um, what this person is asking is the is one of the big critiques of this theory mm -hmm. is that uh, it makes God look like he's just angry at sin all the time because here's the fact we keep sinning right we keep messing up um, so is God is God angry at sin all the time is that one of the consequences of a of a theory that says this is the main one yeah I mean uh all, all theories that claim this is the main one, there, there are s different sides to them, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think that's just something you have to negotiate with, it, it, just deal with with this theory. But no, does it make God angry? No, it makes God just. Okay. And is God angry at sin? Yes. Like you can't get around that in the scriptures, you guys. And it's not an Old Testament, New Testament thing. Like God, because God is loving, he is angry at sin, and um, he wouldn't be loving if he weren't. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it seems that this one's almost diametrically opposed to transhumanism. Like they can't coexist. Is that wrong? So he's asking, is this seems like it's diametrically opposed to the ransom theory. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, they're just operating in different categories, right? So... Can they, co can, they, can they both be true? Can the victory that Jesus wins on the cross free us from the devil's grip? And can it um, satisfy or appease the justice that God rightfully deserves? Um, there's some tension there, but I don't think that they're uh, diametrically opposed in the way that they would cancel each other out. But they may not cross over a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, Rick. Yeah. God hates the sin, not the sinner. Correct. So the statement is God hates the sin, not the sinner. Yeah. So that, that would answer that objection. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. He's not angry at the sinner, but he has to deal with the sin. Yeah, so and, the and it is clear that the motive for the cross is love, right? That John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that Christ, when we were yet enemies of God, he demonstrated his love for us in this, that he died for us, even while we were his enemies. So the motivation is, is love. It's clear through and through. Yeah, Jody. Don't you think that sometimes our culture today, you know, the, the breakdown of family, et cetera, that, that that's why we see God. I think you see God as always angry and always up to get you because instead of seeing him like a loving parent, who, you know, will read you at night and cuddle you and put you to bed, but if you smack your brother, we'll thank you, you know? I mean, it's, it's that, I mean, it is that he's loving and just and he gives us boundaries for our good and for our, our care. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I just think, I, I think we, our family breakdown has messed us up, so we all, if we've had crappy experiences with our parents, <laughs> we tend to be bad. Yeah, we do. Yeah, uh, Jody's pointing out that there's, 
some cultural things they read into this that we're we're I think we're saying we're 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 nervous about um, anything that sounds angry, <laughs> and yet a loving parent would be unloving if they're not if they don't discipline, right? Which the, the Bible says that in, in yeah. uh, Hebrews twelve. Um, absolutely, yeah, that's that's a good observation. All right, okay, Here we go. Let's uh. These, a lot of these are going to relate to the next question or the next topic as well. So, okay, great. Because they these, are connected. These connected. These are connected. Go for it. Um, so if you have in the 12th century, you have um, the satisfaction theory that starts to rise to prominence. It's during the Reformation, 1500s, that penal substitutionary atonement starts to become one of the more prominent views. Um, this view was adopted by some of the reformers like uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and it took the satisfaction theory that talked about God's justice, and it added in some different dynamics. And here's what penal substitution would suggest, that Jesus dies in our place, substitution, to satisfy God's wrath against humanity and against sin. That Jesus is punished in our place in order to satisfy God's justice and the legal demands that went along with the debt that our sin incurred. In light of the fact that Jesus has died in our place, God can now forgive our sin and restore relationship with him. So it's also, I think, worth noting that it's this theory that starts to talk about imputed righteousness. So um, an alien righteousness, if you will, a righteousness that is not your own um, and so we could have put Second Corinthians chapter 5, that he became sin for us, uh, while we become the righteousness of God. That could have been one of the passages of scripture that we talked about here. Um, so let me, uh, let me just go into that a little bit more. This theory of atonement, it contrasts with Anselm's satisfaction theory in that God is not satisfied with the debt of justice being paid by Jesus, but that God is satisfied with punishing Jesus in our place. Does that make sense? So those are some nuances that start to be teased out between these two developments. Okay, where does this idea come from? Romans chapter uh, 3, verses 23 through 25, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Secondly, uh, we have Isaiah chapter, and we're going to come back to that word propitiation if, um, in a few moments if we have time. Isaiah chapter 53 Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then finally, Galatians chapter 3, this gets at the substitutionary aspect more than the penal, um, but it's worth noting also, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Mm -hmm. He became the curse for us. Mm -hmm. Um, What does this theory get right? Um, It gets right that Jesus is our substitute. It gets right that Jesus dies in our place. It gets right that Jesus takes our punishment, which is death and destroys death on our behalf. It gets right the fact that a holy God, we need to be made right with a holy God, that we cannot walk in our sin into the presence of God and live. As an aside, not because God can't be around sin, but because sin can't be around God. Um, What doesn't it get right? Um, we can talk about this in a little bit, but some versions of this would suggest that the wrath of God is satisfied, quote unquote. And if by that we mean that God's wrath is completely done away with, we have a hard time reading the book of Revelation with any sense of honesty. Yeah. That, okay. This gets into some of the, uh, some, some questions of similarity. One question was kind of, Explain a little bit more of the differences. Can I, really, can I hit yeah. on one other thing? Yeah, well, really right. quick. Um, so a number of the reformers were lawyers also. And so this idea of guilt innocence is very strong amongst, amongst the Reformation. And you can see it reflected in um, both the satisfaction view of atonement, but also penal substitutionary atonement. Um, it's, it's, it's very strong in guilt innocence. So personal sin, um, offense against the holy God, being made right, declared innocent and holy, big deal mm-hmm. in general, but specifically uh, to penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is the one that um, is, is very popular today. Um, in my mind, I've always thought of this one as, in a sense, a type of satisfaction theory. In other words, it kind of clarifies a little bit of how God is satisfied. Um, in that way. So there's some overlap here, in other words, is what I'm getting at. So because someone asked to explain the difference, and I think you, you continue to do so. So I don't think we need to go more. Instead, I, I think we need to go into this, some of that, some of the wrath. Yeah. And some of the things that, um, I mean, okay, I'd say one of the things that I am nervous about this is it assumes that God is the one who is punishing Jesus. Right. So I guess the question is, who killed Jesus? Well, yes. Who killed Jesus? Yeah. Um, well, let's dive into that. Roman, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bible, just flip over there. Um, I would say that the other difference in satisfaction and penal substitutionary atonement is the substitution piece um, in that Jesus dies in our place. This is a huge deal when it comes to Uh, penal substitution, Mm -hmm. and not as much when it comes to satisfaction. It's certainly there. Acts chapter 2, let's start in verse um, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what I would argue is that Acts chapter 2 teaches us that the cross was God's plan 
and human hands. Okay, so it's God's divine plan, and yet it was executed by people who had free volition to do what they wanted, but what they wanted was to kill the author of life. Mm. I mean, G- Peter will point at the same group of people and, and say, you killed the author of life. Mm-hmm. Meaning, this is God's divine plan, foreknowledge, etc. and yet um, when the people that stand before the judgment seat of God who the people who killed Jesus can't go, this was your idea, not my fault. Hmm. Question. So that, that kind of gets at a little bit of what, what I, I was asking. Um, what you're saying is that the Bible doesn't attribute the death of Jesus to God's doing. Not solely. Not solely. Not solely. But it's clearly uh, yeah, people I mean, doing this. This is one of the only things that the... the Romans and the Jewish leaders and the politicians. The death of Christ is a collusion of all the different forces of society coming against the Son of God. Mm-hmm. There's very few other things that they agreed on. Okay. Oh, sorry. In the, in the back there first. Yeah. Yeah. Esther. Esther, go for it. Okay. Back to the idea this is a cosmic event. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and he gives us that through the Holy Spirit. So that's the personal responsibility part. Yeah. Esther's getting at the idea that there's there's a cosmic thing that happens um, that we've talked about, but there's also something personal um, and something, this is, this is what, this is what brings it down to, to me and to you that, uh, it gives us power over sin. Sure. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That that power to live um, not as a slave to sin anymore, but a slave to righteousness is, and that's where Paul connects the event that uh, happened on the cross to, and you've been given the Spirit of God, right? He became the curse. And you receive the spirit so that you can walk in freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, oh, okay. Go ahead. We had, we had, we had one more here. Okay, let's keep going. Okay. Thank you. He's, he's yielding his time. Right on. Um, <laughs> so this idea of wrath. Yes. We were, um, yeah. I, I think that, so you've all heard the song um, in Christ alone, um, uh, that the wrath of God was satisfied. Yeah. And, to that, I would say yes and amen, depending on what you mean by that. By wrath, right? And by God's, yeah. By satisfied, by satisfied, right? Got it, okay. Um, because uh, Romans, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 9. If you have your Bible, just flip over there with me. Uh, Romans 5, 9. 
says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. So this is directly talking about the cross. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so this is talking about a wrath that is yet coming. And we can see the wrath of God that oh, yes. comes in Revelation, right? Yep. And so does the cross justify us and save us from God's wrath? Absolutely. Does it satisfy God's wrath in the sense that it drains it, right? That there is no more. No, I, I don't think it does that. There's no more towards those who are in Christ. That's how I would say that. Um, and I think this is important because sometimes we, we talk about, well, where do we see the wrath of God on the cross? And some people will point to uh, this idea that Jesus drank the cup and the cup is uh, seen as God's wrath and he drinks it down to the dregs. He drinks it dry. Mm -hmm. So there's no more. Um, I would say that there's at least two issues with that. Number one is that there is more. And number two, that um, James and John, their mom uh, came up to Jesus and said, uh, we'd like for he, we'd like for my sons to sit on your right and left hand. And Jesus says to her, well, can they drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And he responds by saying, they will drink the cup that I am going to drink. Mm -hmm. So whatever cup Jesus drank, they drink also after Jesus drank it. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and because that works both with the victory as well. Someone, someone had noticed that that this idea that it's a now and, or it was, it happened then and it will happen, right? It happened on yes. the cross, there was victory. So um, Hebrews 2 says that victory over Satan occurred at the cross. Um, and then, and yet, 1 Corinthians indicates that it's in the future, Yes. right? And so you're, it's a both and. Make no mistake about it. The cross does save us, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 9, does save us from the wrath of God, from the anger of God. And that's what that word wrath means. It means literally it's anger acted out, right? And um, so here's what that means. That means that when we're forgiven, it's not like God judicially forgives us and makes sure that we are clean and righteous, but then he's still going, I can't believe what you did, mm. right? Like you're forgiven and you're welcomed home. You're in my house now, but I'm still really mad at you. Yeah. Which my guess is you've had interactions like that with people before. Um, Praise be to God that what the cross does is it not only makes, makes us judicially right before God and holy, but it also satisfies the wrath of God against us, meaning that God welcomes us gladly into his family and does not hold any anger against us because of our sin anymore. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, Praise that's God. right. That's right. Okay, so... Um, let me get to let me get to one of our um, pre questions. This is all these are all related. So many good questions, you guys. I'm not going to get to them all, um, but this one I really wanted to get to because, um, and it's kind of tying back a little bit to the Christus Victor okay. theory of atonement. That um, okay, this is the way it's phrased, and let me just read it. Does 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 that idea of atonement? Okay, remember Christus Victor that he's kind of conquered the the powers. Um, does that put the proper value and consideration and, and deal fairly with the Old and New Testament passages speaking about God's wrath, what we were just talking about? Is that, is that really, is that what the Bible, the story is saying 
is it really getting at both the ideas? Um, let me, I'll answer that two ways. Okay. Uh, number one, I think it's important to note that Jesus did um, die uh, right around a high holy day, right? Which, which, which is what day? Shabbat. It, what, right, uh, Passover, right? Um, now, he did not die ironically, right? Because these are all theories of atonement. atonement. And yet, he could have died on the Day of Atonement. And he didn't. So I think that when we talk about the Old Testament, um, he's dying on Passover. And I think one of the ways we should view what happens on the cross mm. is a new exodus is taking place, right? An exodus from sin, an exodus from death, an exodus out of a, a different Egypt and into a new promised land or out of exile and into uh, God's presence, yes, right? Yes. And so does it honor the Old Testament? Does Croesus Victor, um, I believe it does, but it, it's, I, I make no bones about it. One of the weaknesses of Croesus Victor is it does not adequately deal with the wrath of God, mm. in my opinion, in my opinion. Okay, someone, someone had a responder to that a little bit. Now, at least to the personal sin thing, because it says this, if, if, Christ is, if Christ is victor over sin and I was a slave to sin, why say that that theory doesn't deal strongly enough now with, with personal sin and, and even the, the wrath against the, uh, the oppression of sin. Yeah, I mean, really, so the wrath against sin, uh, as displayed in Croesus Victor, is, uh, is displayed against God's anger at sin itself. Okay. Because the cosmic powers of sin, death, and evil are destroyed. So that's, he is angry. Um, this is like uh, John chapter 11, when Jesus is walking up to the tomb of Lazarus, and he's deeply troubled and sorrow and spirit. Literally in the Greek, it's like he's walking up to the tomb and he goes <laughs> on the inside. And I can assume, only assume. And who, like, who's Jesus angry at? I, I, he's angry at death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's angry at the way that this has marred his good creation and unraveled the design that he originally created for human beings to live eternally in relationship with God. So I think if Christus Victor... Uh, the way that it deals with sin is by dealing with capital S sin and uh, the one who was at least in part responsible for introducing it into the world in the first place. Okay. But now, wouldn't you say, though, he's angry at that, not just as a concept itself, but because of what it does totally. to people. Yes. Right? Yes. So the pressure, oppression... And that, his creation. And his creation. Absolutely. Right? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Um, but the oppressor the slave uh, owner in a sense is sin right. right that that's that's the that we're slaves to sin and so in christus victor the, his wrath is against uh, the the slaveholder mm -hmm. that is tying us down and he deals with that he came to destroy he the devil to destroy it he wins victory over it right and so it I think this is what this person was getting at is that yeah, it, it, it does deal with it. It deals with it. Just you don't think enough. Not, not in the same way that, that uh, Got it. penal substitutionary atonement does. Got it. Yeah. Like it. Question in the back. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the first question. I think the word propitiate is a bad word. 
let's get to propitiation. Okay, so the, the reason I say that is because the atonement is a temporary covering in the Old Testament. So the atonement is a temporary covering in the Old Testament. And it's a permanent taking away of sin in the New uh, Testament. And it's Correct. a permanent taking away Removal. of sin in the New Testament. And so... Okay. Atonement. Okay, so now do you want to you want to tackle that in three minutes? Oh, um, <laughs> um, so the question is that hilasterion. Yeah. Um, what what is what is the best translation of that? Um, okay, because he's saying that. Uh, yeah. So you have ESV that uses propitiation. You have uh, RSV that uses expiation, and you have NIV that uses uh, a place of place atonement. Place of atonement. Yes. Um, the most literal translation is place of atonement. Place of atonement. Um, and that's because Elasterion, and you can, you can look it up in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, Elasterion is quite literally the mercy seat covering of the Holy of Holies that they would sprinkle the goat's blood on on the day of atonement. And so it was the place of atonement. It was the place that uh, was cleansed by the life that was in this blood, making clean space for the nation of Israel to interact with God. And um, interestingly enough, the goat that was the sin offering was not the goat on which the sin of the nation of Israel was cast. That goat didn't die, at least not in the temple, not in the Holy of Holies. He may have got pushed off the cliff, but that goat was cast away rather than killed. And it's not his blood that was shed. So Keith, to answer your question, I, I think there's validity to all of those words being translated illusterion. And I don't think it's as much about translation as it is about theology. And so I, I don't think people choose a word based on how they want to translate that word illusterion. They choose it based on a theological concept that they all admittedly have to read into that text to say, what does this word mean in this context? It has something to do with the justice of God. It's, it does have something to do with the wrath of God, but that's tied back to Romans chapter three, verses five and six, and it weaves its way down. Um, and it has something to do with the forgiveness that's offered in the blood, through the blood of Jesus. Redemption, I think, is a word that is used in Romans chapter three down there. Yeah, Romans 3.25. So if you want to write these down, the, word, the places where this is used is Romans 3.25. And then Hebrews 9.5 is where it's translated as mercy seat. That concept is what it's, it's the same word. That's a, partially why uh, that Romans 3.25, the, the, the NIV translated as the place of atonement, the place where atonement happens. Um, because that's Leviticus 16. Is that right? Am I, yeah, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16 chapter is 16. the day of atonement. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, and, and uh, it's getting to all sorts of, um, the Septuagint uses the same word to which translate. Is the which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Greek translation, of, yes, they uses hilasterion to talk about the mercy seat. And so these are very tied together, right? And, and you're exactly right. Um, the, 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 this, this concept is very much tied to the atonement. Correct. Um, so there's no doubt that that's, that's in there. 
But I think what you're getting at too is that there's more to it. Yeah. It's not less than. No, certainly not. It's, it's, it's more. And I think, and I hope that you're hearing this, because um, even in some of the questions, we've pushed a little bit to, to, to you know, to kind of get it even the, there's some very common um, arguments against some of these. In fact, people brought them up that I didn't even get to, you know, is, is, uh, is this divine child abuse? That no. God would send his son, right? Um, those I, are kind of questions that in a, in a very, um, um, not very thoughtful way of yeah, I mean, there's like talking pop, about these pop things. Pop culture views of these. Yes, there's yes, caricatures yes. of all of these um, motifs or theories of atonement that, that twist what's actually there and can make it seem a certain way that it, it in fact is not. And it can make it seem really terrible as you know, just using the phrase divine child abuse. I didn't ask the question, but I'm using it as a point here to say that how bad that sounds, right? But, but I love how you didn't go there, but it sounds to me like there's a real appreciation of each of these theories. And that, that Absolutely. I didn't hear you say any of them were just dead wrong. No. But they, they come together to form something really beautiful that, that we can see this gem of the cross, um, hopefully a little bit more full, or fuller view of it now. Um, and so, Ryan, I really appreciate that. Um, we are about a minute over time. I hear some rustling. I, I hear some people thinking about their kids. I can hear that. <laughs> that's me. Um, that's you. Yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, we probably both have to pick up kids. So um, any last words, anything that you'd like to say to, to wrap this up? No. Um... My hope is that you don't walk out of here um, with more knowledge in your head, but mm -hmm. with more love in your heart and ah. a gratitude for what Jesus has done to rescue you from sin, to make you right before mm -hmm. a holy God and to welcome you home. That's what the cross is ultimately about. So we can sing with passion, the wonderful, wonderful cross. Oof. So Lord, thank you for your grace towards us as displayed through the person and work of Jesus on the cross. Thank you that sinners like me and Josh and the rest of us here um, are made right before you, a holy God, and welcomed home. Um, we will sing amazing grace throughout all eternity and never get tired of it because of what you've done for us on Calvary's Hill. So thank you, Lord. We worship you, praise you, and are grateful tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks so much, everybody. Hey, we'll try to get to, that's right. Give, he's done so much work on this. I thank you so much. Hey, uh, we'll try to get some more of these questions that we didn't get to next week on our podcast. It, it's live 3 p.m. on Wednesdays. Terrible time to watch, but you can find the podcast feed. You can watch on YouTube or Facebook after the fact, and you can find our podcast at escc.org slash podcast. Really quick, if you want a book oh. on the cross, I suggest The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Ryan brought a book. It is excellent. Um, if you like an easy read, I suggest The Passion of Jesus Christ by John Piper. Easy read. If you want a book that explains a few different views, The Nature of Atonement, Four Different Views, it's a pretty good read. If you want to blow your mind up, read The Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge, um, and then get back to me. All right, ready? Go. There's a few others too. God bless everybody. <laughs>